never listened to a single podcast. You, haven't, you, haven't you listened caught to me. It. You haven't no. listened to it. I who, got it. Who are you people and what are we doing here? <laughs> Welcome back to Serious Epidemiology. I am Matt Fox from the Boston University School of Public Health, and I am joined once again by my friend and co-host, Dr. Haley Bannock from the University of Toronto. Haley, welcome back. Hi, Matt. How are you doing? Doing well, and I'm just going to jump right in here because I don't think we can stave off getting into our guest today, because if we don't, we're just going to hear him heavy breathing in the background. <laughs> I am so excited to be here. So everyone who listens knows that we have been dedicating the second season of our podcast and now the third season to modern epidemiology because we couldn't cram it all into one season. And today we are picking up on our conversation that we had last time on stratification and standardization chapter 18. And to do so, we have brought in Dr. Rich McElhoes from the University of Minnesota. Now, Rich is a professor in the Division of Epidemiology and Community Health. His research interests include quantitative bias analysis, so I've heard I've never actually seen him produce anything. Bayesian statistics and applied work across many different research projects, including studies about heart health, eating behaviors, occupational health and safety, and HIV support and prevention. So welcome to the podcast, Rich. So did I hear correctly this is the third season? Yes, it is. Why are you asking that? You've listened to every episode, so you know that. No, that's not true. But how is it that I'm just now being invited onto this in the third season and you're just now getting around to me? Haven't you ever heard Saving the Best for last? How many guests have you had so far? Oh, we've had a lot of guests. 10, 15? I'd say 25. 25. 25. Okay, let's just, let's go, let's roll right past that. Where do you think <laughs> I'm going to land on the on the pantheon of, of guests? I think this is going to be number one. I think so too. I think that's a bold call, but uh, you know, there have been some other really good ones that you're going to have to compete with. I'm definitely going to rank higher than Kaufman, right? Let's just go there right now. Oh, yeah. You're going to go right there. Okay, well. Yeah, yeah. All right. That's the, the gauntlet has been, wait, no, that's not the gauntlet. The glove has been thrown. What do you say? I think the gauntlet gets thrown. I think I think gauntlet is right. Gauntlet's a glove. Oh, a gauntlet's a glove? A gauntlet is a glove? I thought you run a gauntlet. I thought a gauntlet was a cup. That's a goblet. <laughs> this is going to be so bad. All right, let's move on. Should we start over completely? No, no, this is great. So, Rich, we have some questions for you about stratification and standardization. Yeah. We're going to come back to that because first we want to ask you some more general questions just so the audience can get to know you a bit better. Um, a gauntlet is a glove. For the record, Rich wins. A gauntlet is not a cup. Oh, my God. Or whatever Matt thought it was. It's a glove. God, this is the greatest day of my life. That is going to be on record. The Rich is right. Matt was wrong. Oh. Yes. It's recorded for all time. I feel like that's a, a pretty common theme. All right, Rich, questions for you. First question, what is a movie that you can quote from liberally? All of the Monty Python movies, but we'll go for Holy Grail if you want just one. What's your favorite quote? Do you want to know a story about this? Actually, when I started off, it doesn't matter. I'm not even waiting for a response. I don't, I don't care what you want. When I started off as an assistant professor, I was on a dissertation committee for a fantastic student. It will embarrass her if I say her name, so I will. Uh, it was Katie Loth. She 
is in the Department of Family Medicine as an assistant professor now. She's fantastic. She was a great student. And she was very nervous just before her dissertation exam. And so uh, the night before her dissertation exam, she sent me an email. And I think she was very nervous about, in particular, what I would ask her. Mm -hmm. This is not unusual from students. Like I've realized that a number of them see me as kind of a loose cannon and are very concerned about what I might say, which is somewhat understandable. And so she sends me this email saying, can you give me a hint about what you might ask me? And I said, you know, I don't want this to be stressful for you. I'm happy to tell you exactly what the question is going to be. And it is this, what is the ground speed velocity of an unladen swallow? And she had no idea what I was talking about and was totally freaked out until her husband, who I think was getting a PhD in physics and was equally nerdy, apparently, was like, ask him if he means European or African. Or African. There you go. Yes. <laughs> Good that somebody had the uh, wherewithal to advise her on that. I could have been ugly. I can't imagine why people think you're a loose cannon. I know. I can. That's a totally legitimate question to ask for a, an epi student graduating. Exactly. Thank you, Haley. Okay. Second question, Rich. If you could be on any reality TV show, I should say had to be on a reality TV show, which one would you choose? I'm going to go 1994 real world on MTV just so that I could vote Puck out. So you've now dated yourself yeah. because I'm guessing there are a lot of people who are listening who have no idea what you're even talking about. You know what, though? The Monty Python reference did exactly the same thing. That's a fair point. All of my Monty Python references in class, they are completely lost on, on almost all the students. There'll be one kid in the back who's a total nerd who will laugh at it, and everybody else is wondering what the hell is going on. And that kid gets an A in your class, right? Uh, absolutely, he does. Yeah. It's nice to know you have kids in your class. They didn't used to be. They used to be older than me. All right, let's move on and actually talk about something epidemiology related. Whoa, 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 whoa. Can I ask you a question? Go ahead. Because I did listen. I listened to one of your podcasts. Okay. Uh, just to get an idea for what was what was coming. And so it was. I was at the gym and I was running and I was listening to the podcast. And Matt, you- That's already were... an unbelievable story, but go ahead. Yep, a little bit. And Matt, you were asking Haley these questions. And one of the questions was Bert or Ernie. Yeah. Haley responded Ernie, yeah. which is the correct answer. Objectively, that is right. But you hesitated and you said, yeah, like you didn't agree with it. Is that true? Would you have gone Bert? It depends on what the mission is. It absolutely depends, right? I mean, if you are needing a reliable person to pick you up from surgery, you want Bert. You don't want Ernie. <laughs> Right. So, you know, consider the surgery angle. No, I think you're right. If you're going, if you go to a bar, I agree. You know, as you were saying that, I was like, yeah, you know, I I would want Bert if I'm under anesthesia. Exactly. So, yeah. And it's not that I've been in this situation recently. Oh, Bert hasn't picked you up from surgery recently, Matt? (laughs) Not recently, but something I think about. And I I just want to make clear that you've got to think these things through because you said the wrong answer. You're going to be in a world of trouble. I'm glad I asked. Yeah. I'm sure others are wondering the same thing. So I'm really glad we had a chance to clarify that on this episode. No, that's totally fair. So as I said, we actually asked you to this program to talk about something way more fun than Bert and Ernie. It's stratification and standardization. So Rich, just to start us off, can you explain to us why this, I think your words were, this is the greatest chapter in the history of anything ever written in epidemiology. Was that exactly what you said? That is exactly right. Yeah. Why Why would you say that? This chapter is Perfect. No, I actually, I, I do like this chapter a lot. I, I think this chapter is, it ties together the book really well, right? Up, up until this chapter, they are dealing with sort of theoretical concepts. You talk about 
confounding a bunch. You talk about effect measure modification a bunch. This is the chapter where you start to figure out how to actually assess those things. And then the subsequent chapters after this are all more difficult epidemiologic techniques. You start going into a couple of chapters on regression, and then there's causal inference, there's Bayes stuff. And the only way in my mind that any of those more sort of fancier techniques really make any intuitive sense to me is if I can relate them down to categorical statistics, like the stratification and standardization in this chapter. So regression really only makes sense to me as a series of categorical tables. Causal inference really only makes sense to me, like the marginal structural models and G formula really only makes sense to me as sort of extensions of standardization. I completely agree. And I will say, and Haley and I chatted about this on a, on a previous episode, but we both, and I'm sure you do as well, encourage our students to always start with stratified analyses, always get to know your data. And yet we know that lots of people just jump right in to the regression modeling, despite the fact that we've said it. And so I'm curious if you have thoughts on, I assume that's your experience as well, as to why that is. I mean, do you think that's just the pressure of getting things done? And so we skip the steps that we think are critical, but who has the time for kind of thing? I'm not really saying who has the time for it, but I mean, is that your experience? And, and how do you deal with that? Yes, it is my experience. I think people do generally just jump straight into regression models. And why is it? I don't know. I mean, it's the same way that I spend an enormous amount of time in my teaching telling people not to do null hypothesis significance testing, but then I will attend student dissertations as they're walking out the door and they will do null hypothesis significance testing. And I think we like to think that we have a lot of sway in their lives, but we probably don't have nearly as much sway as the general literature that they're reading and what their advisors actually think. Isn't it because regression's easier? It's easier to do. You can Google, get your program, Google how to run a regression analysis. You have your outcome and exposure and, and you just write three or four words and you can get a number out of that, whether it means anything or it's useful is a totally different story. But then in an assignment or something, if you ask students to create stratified tables from their data, it takes more steps, I think, firstly, to make those tables, but also to interpret what the tables are telling you. It's a couple steps more than just looking at a regression output and Googling what that actually means. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think the interpretation is easier with regression, but it only works if you've met the assumptions that are required for your model. And That's the thing though, Matt, it works all the time. Almost all the time. Almost. Almost all the time, I'll say. You, you know, you'll, you'll get something almost all the time, except if it doesn't converge or you've done something catastrophically wrong. But it works. Whether it means anything is a completely different story. Okay, so clearly we all always stratify our data every single time, never, ever skip that step. And we are perfect. And we get the apple from the teacher. Rich has one on his desk, I know. <laughs> two. Rich has two on his two, desk, apparently. Two apples, yeah. And apparently he invented a type of apple. I mean, in my spare time, that's what I like to do. That's what I heard. Apple breeding. <laughs> apple breeding. It's like the, what was that book? The Orchid Thief? Is that right? I don't know. We apparently belong to different book clubs. All right. I only read Modern Epi. I don't know what you're talking about. Ah. Such a good book. Okay, so this chapter goes into you know everything you'd ever wanted to know about standardization, stratification, pooling, all those things. So first and foremost, and we had this conversation before, and I don't think we ever came to an answer. What is the dichotomy here? Is it a stratification versus standardization or standardization versus pooling or something else? What's the dichotomy here that we should be thinking about? 
Yeah, that's a good question. Um, and I don't know that I've got a great answer. Like, I think the bigger question is what effect do you want to estimate? Do you want to estimate one effect or do you want to estimate several effects, right? If you want several effects that are stratified by something, then you're interested potentially in stratification. If you want one effect, you might be interested in standardization. You might be interested in combining those effects via pooling. So I don't know, the, the structure of this chapter almost feels like it is determined by the historical way that these topics have always been taught. Mm -hmm. You know, we would typically talk about standardization first, especially when we were talking about how to control for confounding. And then we would jump into stratification methods pretty quickly, leaving standardization behind. But what are referred to as stratification methods here, often it's not entirely clear how they're different than standardization methods. Like mental Hansel is presented under stratification. Mm -hmm. But if you look at it, I mean, it's just, it's standardization with a really weird set of weights that don't make any sense to me. So it's stratification, I guess. And there's also this sentence in this chapter that talks about the maximum likelihood methods, which they present as stratification-based methods, but then they go on to say, but these actually match up pretty well with the effect that you get from standardizing to the total population, which makes it sound a lot more like a standardized method. So in my mind, the real question is, as the end user, as the scientist, do you want a single measure of effect, or do you think that there might be some reason to expect effect measure modification, and that you want to report that effect measure modification with multiple measures of effect. And then within either of those two decision nodes, you've probably got a number of different methodologic techniques you could employ to get an answer. That's pretty interesting because I have always thought of it as stratification and pooling are together an approach to adjusting for confounding. And then standardization is its own separate approach. But it sounds like that's probably a false way of thinking about it, that, that really stratification is stratification, just stratifying the data on a particular variable. And then I have different approaches that I can use to bring that information back together, whether it be standardization or pooling. Okay, so now I'm kind of confused here because <laughs> if you think of mental Hensel as basically standardization with weird weights, what is the difference then if it's all standardization? Well, the difference for mental Hansel is that, man, mental Hansel is a weird one. I know we're going to talk about that later, but what, where do those weights come from? Who made up those weights? I mean, obviously, I know Mantle and Hansel. <laughs> well, I have a story here that I inherited from Charlie Poole, who told me this story when I was a student at UNC. And this is at least the way I remember it. I, I hope I'm getting it right. And I hope he doesn't mind me telling this, but I bet Charlie doesn't listen to podcasts. So we're probably safe. So he said that once, when he was a young epidemiologist, he actually ran into Nate Mantell at a conference, I think, and had lunch with him and was asking him how they came up with the mantle Hansel and where the weights came from. And Mantell's response was, Hansel and I were just sort of screwing around with two by two tables. And this one turned out to work out the best as a summary measure. So I didn't get the sense from that story, if I'm remembering correctly, that, you know, it was a very ad hoc procedure that tended to work really well in practice. But the weights have never really made any intuitive sense to me. None. And there's also like there's a funny sentence in this in this chapter that says that the mantle Hansel is easy to calculate, which <laughs> has never been my experience with the mantle Hansel. And especially if you want to talk about the variance estimates of the mantle Hansel. Like, Matt, there was that one episode where we were writing part of the book and we had to use the variance estimate of the mantle Hansel and you coded it and I coded it and we both coded it wrong. And it took us like a week to go back and forth and figure out where all the mistakes were because the formula was so wrong. Yeah, I always tell students you should know how to calculate standardization and mental Hensel by heart. You should just know it for reasons, not because it's important to memorize it, but because it's important to have the basis for the understanding of what the concepts are. But the confidence intervals, no way. 
no way yeah. I would I ever think that anybody should be using up precious brain space for that. You have them memorize the Mantle Hansel formula? I do. Wow. Well, I shouldn't say that I do. I don't require it. I just, they ask me when they're studying for their qualifying exams, what I think they should have memorized and what I think should be essentially considered. If you need it, it'll be provided. And I say you should know how to do standardization and mental Hensel by heart. I think you should know the formulas for the variance for a risk difference, risk ratio and rate ratio and odds ratio. Yeah. Haley, do you have it memorized? I, I do not have it memorized. I would have to look in a book. I would say when I was doing my exams, yeah, I probably had it memorized because it's too many things to try to keep track of conceptually. It's so much easier to know all the parts when you just, you know, not memorize the formula, but learn the formula, then you just have it all in front of you in your head. So yeah, I prefer it that way. And so Rich, to go back, so you said that when they were coming up with the weights for Mental Hensel, they basically just playing around with things and this one worked best. By work best, presumably you mean at the smallest variance. Uh, I think it was unbiased and had, it turned out not to have the smallest variance, but it had a smaller variance because there was a period of time in the the mid 80s, it was like a cottage industry of people who were coming up with better and better variance estimates for the Mantle Hansel. And it was just like one paper after another for like five or six years. So Mantle and Hansel didn't initially get the best variance, but they probably got something that was pretty good. And I think they showed that it was unbiased and worked pretty well in small sample sizes. I think it caught on because at the time you could actually do it by hand on a piece of paper. And the alternative was waiting for some sort of supercomputer to run a logistic regression, which was not feasible for most people. That'll never happen. (laughs) No, we're still waiting for that. Um, Can we go back to that dichotomy which talked about, about stratification and and pooling? So Matt, you seemed to have a different perspective on that. And that confused me a little bit because when I'm teaching this, you start with some basic two by two table, you stratify, you see what the effects are in either. If they're very different from each other, put it in a category for effect modification. You don't want to pool. You don't want to do any of that. If they're similar to each other, here are the list of things that you might want to consider. Among them, pooling. Among them standardization among them if you want to use regressions that kind of stuff so it all falls under that same umbrella in my mind or when i'm teaching it so so i wanted to know matt do you see them differently than that or what's the difference there i do see them differently for two reasons so the first is that my understanding is that you're correct in that if we stratify the data and then we observe heterogeneous effects heterogeneous heterogeneity (laughs) if we observe heterogeneity By the way, just as an aside here, we have this tendency, like, so you know how I said, Rich, you can pause and then we'll edit stuff out. Mm -hmm. We do this all the time, but what ends up happening is we pause because we've laughed at something and then we start again laughing. And so then when you try to edit it together... It's just like we're laughing for absolutely no reason. So I'm trying to... I think you should leave in all the all the weirdness like this. I hope you don't edit this out, right? The people are going to eat this up. The people? The people. The people. The people. The, whoever listens to these podcasts both? when they're at the gym and whatever, both of them, both, both of Haley's them. mom and... My mom. Both my parents. Whichever yeah. child you've paid. Yeah. <laughs> both of them. Okay. So Haley, your question. So I do think of them differently. And the reason is if you've got effect heterogeneous then you're right that we might want to consider stopping there, right? That's sort of the in the algorithm that we give students, we say stratify, calculate your summary measures within the strata. And then if they're different from each other, stop right there. And, you know, maybe we want to stop right there, but we don't have to. We can calculate a measure pooled across strata that have heterogeneity. But in that case, my understanding is you can't really use the mental Hansel. You've got to use standardization because you want to standardize to a specific population and say, okay, this is the 
effect in the whole population because it has a specific distribution of the modifier. So in that case, they're different to me. The second reason is my understanding, and it sounds like Rich may disagree with me on this, is that when you move into the regression versions of these things, I think of most of the standard regression-based approaches that we use to be, I've always said stratification, but I guess I mean pooling-based approaches, as opposed to the more, I don't know, newer weighting-based approaches, which I think of as analogs of standardization. And my understanding is that the benefits of the weighting-based approaches is that you don't have to stratify. I mean, marginal structural models work when you have time-dependent confounding affected by prior exposure work because you are not stratifying, whereas in traditional regression approaches, you are stratifying. So that's why, for me, the dichotomy was always stratification versus standardization. But then I don't know where pooling fits in, so I get confused. Well, it's also complicated in my mind because I don't know if you guys feel the same way, but for me, when I talk about pooling, I usually mean a very specific thing, which is inverse variance weighted pooling like in a meta-analysis. And I never refer to pooling as mantle Hansel or maximum likelihood techniques. I always reserve pooling just for inverse variance weighted, which is not the way that this chapter right. refers to it. Right. I mean, this chapter refers to as pooling the information from two different strata together. But yeah, I mean, isn't that what standardization is doing in a way? It is pooling that information, but it's doing it based on a very specific population. Correct. Yes. Okay. So then, Rich, do you have a preference, standardization or pooling, if we're going to call it pooling? Do I have a preference? No. I mean, I think they're both very useful. Certainly, it's still easier to do stratification-based methods like regular regression. Although this, what you were referring to is more like standardization-based methods like marginal structural models are becoming a lot easier to do at this point. I usually think about epidemiologic measures of effect in terms of standardization, right? Like when we're talking about causal inference, I'm usually, I have a target population in mind. And with standardization, there is an explicit target population. With the stratification-based methods like maximum likelihood, the target population is not clear. So I have a preference for standardization in that sense. Now, there's this paper that they cite in, in chapter 18 that's an old Greenland and Maldonado, or maybe Maldonado and Greenland paper, where they do some simulations and they compare logistic regression estimates to the, the estimate you would get from standardizing the total population, the exposed population, or the unexposed population. And it's something like two-thirds of the time, it's closest to the total population. But that's not really the same thing as saying this is essentially getting us the standardization to the total population. So in my mind, if you want standardization of the total population, I think you're wise to just use like marginal structural models or G-estimation, which are not that hard to do at this point, actually, especially if you're using something like Stata. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Oh, do you want to go there? Yeah, I want to go there. No, I'm team Stata. I'm, and that's why yeah. that's why I can tell that Sorry, you're- Sorry, what, what, you know. what is this Stata you speak of? Is that some new software or I've not yeah, heard of it? Yeah, Stata is the supercomputer that will do logistic regression for you, Matt. It's great. You have these punch cards and you load it in in the basement of the building and it comes back a week later. Ah, nice. um, no, so Stata a, a number of years ago came out with a command called margins, which computes a marginal effect for you. So you can run a logistic regression and get the margin risk difference, which is exactly the same as the parametric G formula in a simple setting like that. And as far as I'm aware, SAS doesn't have a built-in capability like that. You could do it with like bootstrapping or something, but Stata makes it really, really easy to do to the extent that it's actually changed the way that I analyze data on a day-to-day basis and end up doing that sort of model-based standardization all the time now instead of regular stratification type regression models. So SAS does in fact have a program now, Proc Causal TRT? 
but it's got one now. I've never used it, so I can't tell you how good it is. Rich, I use margins a lot too. And I find interpreting what you're getting out of margins and the number of different effects you can get out of margins is really tricky. Do you have that issue as well? Yeah. Okay. I, I have that issue with Stata in a few different places. As much as I like Stata, I think that it has sort of outgrown the initial programming capacity that they had anticipated. And so the programming for things like margins or multiple imputation is increasingly reliant on really obtuse modifiers on variables and things like that, which really limits the capacity of it. So yeah, I agree. Yeah. Speaking of, you know, earlier I said, you can always get an answer from a regression. That's how I feel a little bit about margins. You'll always get a number out of it. (laughs) Whether you actually know what that means, sometimes I do, sometimes I don't. So that's just a word of caution for those folks trying to, to get into margins. You might be confused like me at what exactly you are getting out of that, but that's kind of an aside. Fair enough. Okay, so we've got these two different approaches. We'll call them standardization and pooling based approaches. And I can't remember which one of you said it, but one of you said at the beginning something along the lines of, we essentially teach people standardization in one of your early intro to epi courses, and then we leave it. We never, ever come back to it unless you go yeah. on to the more advanced advanced courses and you start doing inverse probability weighting or G estimation, G formula type approaches. I feel like the chapter follows that logic too, in that there are a few pages on standardization and I believe there are 712 pages on stratification. Is that correct? (laughs) Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I think it follows exactly that logic. Yep. Why is that? Why does standardization get such little attention when I think it's actually, in my view, the more principled approach? Uh, I agree with you. It's the more principled approach. And I guess, I mean, they're both principled approaches. I The thing I like about it, as I said earlier, is that it relates more directly to the way I think about causal effects. Like there's a clear target population I care about. It being standardization. Yes, standardization. Yeah. And so I, I like it for that reason. And I think the reason the chapter is laid out like it is, is sort of what we talked about already. I mean, for a large period of the history of epidemiology, it was easy to do stratification-based regression models. Like logistic regression has been around and pretty easy to use since the mid-80s. Whereas these newer methods like the standardization type methods like marginal structural models and G-formula type models, when we were students, that was impossible, right? Like that was like, whoa, what is this madness? And it's only in recent years where this has really become possible. So I think the chapter is sort of laid out like this for historical reasons, and it'll probably change in the next few years. Who are you referring to when you say back in our student days? It was you and me, not Haley, because you and I are both old. My student days were a couple years ago, I'm pretty sure. Really? I just finished, just finished my degree. Yep, absolutely. Tell me this. Have you received any hate mail from the AARP recently? The letter came in the mail. My wife who insists she is younger than I because even though we're only three months apart in age, there is a calendar year between us. So she's younger. Yeah. So she picked it up, put it in front of me and laughed when the AARP letter came. Oh, wait. This is real, the ARP letter. This is letter. real. Oh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, the ARP starts sending you stuff when you turn 50. Yeah, that is coming to you in the mail, and I can't believe that this is happening in this day and age. It's, it's shocking to me. All right, so despite my youth... Oh, wait, wait, can I go back to something you said a little while ago that I wanted to ask about? You can. You were talking about this sort of flow chart that most epidemiologists have in their heads yeah. of you look and you see if there's any evidence of effect modification, and then if there's no evidence of effect modification, then you go and look at confounding, but if there is evidence of effect modification, you said that you usually present stratified results, although you don't have to. Can you talk more about that? That aspect that you don't have to present stratified results, even if you have effect measure modification, I think is something that escapes most people, actually. Most students, I think, are are sort of blown away by that. 
Yeah, I mean, I think we teach it that way. So that's why people think about that. And we, when we teach effect measure modification, heterogeneity, interaction, I think those are fairly complicated topics. It's, it's sort of easy to grasp when you first see it that, okay, there's something different. But to actually understand what's going on, I think, takes more time and effort. And students, when they first come across it, are also learning confounding and trying to distinguish the two. And that's complicated. I definitely remember struggling in the beginning, trying to separate those two. Yeah. So you're just trying to grasp all of this. And so I think we say the easiest thing, which is there is something different about the effect within the strata of this, this third variable, the effect of the exposure on the outcome within some third variable. So stop right there because that is actually interesting and useful information and you don't want to average that together. And I can think of really obvious examples where that would be the case, you know, where you have a protective effect in one strata and a harmful effect in the other and you average them together, you get a null. How often does that really happen? I don't know. But that would be a case where, okay, you don't want to pool these because you're going to lose really important information. But the idea that if you just want to know what is the effect of my exposure on the outcome in a population where I intend to actually deploy this intervention, there's no reason where I can't standardize the effect across the different modifiers to figure out what the average effect in the whole population will be when I move to this new population. And how often are we really going to be in a situation where we want to do that? I, I don't know. Maybe not all that often, but it, it is possible. And there, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. So long as we truly understand there may be different effects for different subgroups and just deploying this intervention to everybody may not be the ideal strategy. Is that how you view it? Yes, mostly. With the exception that you said that it wouldn't happen all that often, that you would have heterogeneity, but that you would still collapse. I actually think that it happens all the time and that we just don't recognize what we're doing. The world's a complicated place, right? Wouldn't it be really weird if there wasn't effect measure modification everywhere all the time? Yeah. A few years yeah. ago, there was this big debate about is there more or less effect measure modification on different scales? Was it like Donna Spiegelman was saying that she didn't ever find as much on the relative risk scale? That is correct. And my feeling about that whole debate was it would seem super weird to me if there wasn't always effect measure modification pretty much all the time on every scale. The world's a complicated place. Like, why do we think that it would be easy for us? We shouldn't ever think that. And so we don't actually go looking for effect measure modification all the time, partly because I think we're afraid that we're going to find it everywhere, which is true. We will. And so instead, what we do is we run these regression models that exclude interaction terms, and we end up hopefully reporting something that is kind of an, an effect measure that is standardized to the total population, like that uh, Maldonado and Greenland article that we talked about earlier. Okay, are we going down this road? Because if we're going down this road, I got lots of questions. Yeah, let's do it. Yeah, I think that's what this is for, right? Nobody's listening anymore. <laughs> that's, we can talk about whatever we want. Nobody was listening in the beginning. <laughs> So you mentioned this paper. It was a couple of papers, I think, if I remember correctly. Donna Spiegelman and possibly colleagues, I don't remember, was arguing that the risk ratio was the more stable measure, meaning the measure where you would be least likely to find effect heterogeneity. Whereas I think it was maybe Charlie Poole who was arguing the opposite. That's right. Yeah. I think that might be right. And he has that great paper on the origins of risk relativism. Oh, that's a great one. So yeah. the question is, if that's correct, that if, if we would expect that there should always be effect heterogeneity. The examples that, I don't remember if it was in the Spiegelman paper or not, but I've certainly seen examples of this where they present a whole bunch of estimates where in their field they see stable relative risks and unstable risk differences. You could imagine a world in which there was effect measure modification for real on the risk difference scale 
but it would be unlikely that you would then see a whole bunch of cases where you take those same measures and divide them rather than subtract them. And they're homogenous across populations such that I don't know. I mean, I'm a much bigger believer in the risk difference model than the relative risk model. And yet those examples can't just be coincidence, can they? Not necessarily coincidence, but this is a little bit dangerous because I don't really have a particularly strong memory of this argument. But weren't most of Donna Spiegelman's papers that she was citing, they were based out of the nurse's health study? I don't remember. I kind of feel like they were. And if that's the case, then maybe it's just this one population. There's less multiplicative interaction for some reason. I don't I don't know. But yeah, I don't know. I've seen I feel like I've seen examples. So I wasn't specifically referring just to that paper. I don't remember that paper actually having a lot of citations to examples so much as I've just seen other examples where people have pushed back when I have argued for the risk difference model. And people have said, yeah, you have these examples where the risk ratio is stable. And my thought is, well, If we believe in a world where there should be lots of effect modification, then that would say, okay, actually the risk difference is probably the better measure because you're you're seeing so much heterogeneity. But it seems to me so unlikely that you would get into a situation where you have lots of cases where the risk difference is heterogeneous, but the same measure, the risk ratio is not, right? It, It would be much more likely that occasionally that would happen. And more often than not, you would find that both measures are heterogeneous. So I don't know. I've always found that a a compelling counter argument, but not strong enough to change my model of the universe. Well, I guess I have two thoughts there. I mean, the first is I'd be curious. I'm, like a lot of this argument is based on what people have seen in their own work, right? Yep. And so what have you two seen in your work? I mean, in my work, I usually find that if I look for effect measure modification on different scales, I usually find it on every scale yeah. or neither scale. And I think the neither scale part mm-hmm. is because most of these tests really don't have very much power. Tests. Oh, we're going to have to talk about tests now. Yes. Oh, yeah. We're really getting off topic of chapter 18, by the way. But the other thing I did want to say was, and you'll cut all of this out of the podcast. Absolutely. Uh, Anyhow. I assume you've stopped recording, really. But the other thing I want to say is that to some extent, I feel like these conversations are putting the cart before the horse, I think is how the saying goes. Like With the gauntlet? Are you pushing the cart with the gauntlet? With the ga- you're petting the horse with the gauntlet to, to make it move more quickly and get ahead of the cart. But I feel like we should actually just be choosing the effect measure that we want that is most meaningful, easiest to interpret, has the best properties, and then dealing with the effect measure modification if it happens. I'm not sure that deciding, like for instance, would you decide if if it turned out that in reality, there was never any effect measure modification on the odds ratio scale, would you choose an odds ratio never. to report all the time? Never. Probably not. Never. So I, I feel like this is kind of putting the cart before the horse. Like okay. just choose the effect measure, modifica- effect measure you want and then deal with the modification. Okay. But now, so then make your case for when you'd ever want a relative measure as the desired measure. So as much as I wish that it was easy easier for people to interpret absolute measures of effect. It's not. I think that the world has been conditioned to think about these relative measures of effect. So I do think in this really messed up way that starting off naively, it is easier for people to think about additive measures of effect, but we talk to the entire population about relative measures of effect nonstop so much that it's probably easier in some ways to report relative measures of effect. 
So ease of interpretation. So I'll agree with you there. But then the question becomes, does the effect heterogeneity that we observe have any meaning? So let me give you an example. I mean, and by the way, I just want to say, I do actually agree with you. I think that additive measures and risk differences are much easier to interpret. I think they are much easier to interpret when we are dealing with things that are not on the scale that we often deal with in epidemiology, because we deal with often with very rare outcomes. And so to know that your risk of mortality from some intervention goes down by 0.02%. Does the average person know if that's in any way meaningful? Because it doesn't sound like it, but actually that could be actually quite important in terms of your overall lifespan. You know, so I don't actually right. don't think they are particularly useful or sorry, easy to interpret when you're dealing with rare outcomes like we do. But during the COVID pandemic, the New York Times put this graphic on the front page at one point. I think it was the New York Times, could have been the Post. It was probably the Post that said the vaccines were doing much worse against the Omicron variant than the previous variants. Leaving aside, this was a crude graphic that was biased. You cannot draw conclusions from these. Completely unadjusted, surveillance bias, et cetera, et cetera. But let's pretend that you could. The message would be completely reversed if you looked on the different scale compared to what they were looking at, which was the relative scale, right? So transmission, as they defined it, you know, I mean, number of of people testing positive was reduced much more for those who were vaccinated compared to unvaccinated during the previous waves compared to the Omicron wave. But on the different scale, there was so much Omicron that actually on the different scale was vaccines were much more protective and you get the complete reversed message. So I'm not sure it's okay to just say figure out the scale you're interested in and then interpret the heterogeneity because I think it can be misleading. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) Can you just say, Matt, you're correct. You win. No, I'm not going to go that far. I'm going to say, I suspect it's an argument where there is no single right answer, right? You're always going to be able to come up with some sort of counter argument that is a special case. And I'm not really willing to say that, that you won. I don't know about you, Haley, but that just doesn't sit right with me. No, no, I agree with that. I, yeah, sure. Go ahead, Matt. That's a good example. Yeah. Okay. So here's where I'm going to insert some little pieces of views edited so that it says you are correct. Editorial control. Yeah. I'm just going to remove the, I'm not willing to say. Okay. Haley, any questions you want to ask? Yes. So Matt and I recorded an episode about the chapter a little while ago, and we were discussing the use of p-values and testing to detect heterogeneity across strata. And I was a little bit confused after our conversation because I think Matt was defending the use of p-values in this particular context. I am not a fan of using them in this context or any context. And this is one little part of the the book and the chapter that I disagree with in that I think it's confusing, you know, use it in this context, but not in other contexts. And I would rather we not have them at all. So I wanted to, to chat with you a little bit about what your thoughts are on that. So you think there should never be any null hypothesis significance testing of any kind and ever anywhere in epidemiology? That would be my vote, truly. Okay. I mean, the words are getting sort of stuck in my my throat having to say this, but I, I think I kind of agree with Matt. Okay. But I don't entirely disagree with you either. Neither did I. I did not completely disagree with Haley. You're just trying to agree with me now. I, it's unseemly, Matt. Yeah, fair enough. Control yourself. So I, I think it's a complicated situation and you could, I think, inappropriately rely on hypothesis testing here. I think you could appropriately rely on hypothesis testing. I think in general, in many cases, it's better not to rely on hypothesis testing, and it requires a little bit of substantive knowledge from the investigator to do that. 
So just to back up a little bit, I would say that I did hear part of that podcast while I was on the treadmill where you guys were talking about this. And I would distinguish between the method, which is the hypothesis test, and the abuse of the method, right? Like there's nothing inherently wrong with a hypothesis test. It has a stated purpose and it has a series of steps that you go through that are logically perfectly fine if that is the purpose that you want. And I think the problem that many of us have with hypothesis tests is that it gets used in one particular place all the time time where it really, really was never meant to be used there. And that particular place is how somebody interprets their results. Like they say that they found something if the P is less than 0.05 and they say they found nothing if the P is greater than 0.05. And that's that's ridiculous. Like that's not what hypothesis tests were invented for. Hypothesis tests were invented to make a discrete choice and have an action associated with that choice. And for presenting results, there's nothing in there that correlates to that, that we actually want to have happening in the scientific process. Yeah. Isn't the idea, but you just said concluding whether you found something or not, isn't the decision whether there is heterogeneity across your strata, isn't that the decision you're, you're reaching in this context, whether it's it's there or not? Yes. And that's where I think that it is sometimes defensible when you're talking about heterogeneity, because you have a discrete choice to make. Think about an epidemiologist doing due diligence and just looking for interactions between different variables to get good model fit. And these aren't necessarily a priori hypotheses. They just need to figure out, do I include an interaction term in the model or do I not? And that is a place where you could use a hypothesis test. You could do a test, and if the p-value is less than 0.05, your decision is made. But there is an interaction, and you keep the interaction term in. If the p is greater than 0.05, you decide there's no interaction, you take the interaction term out. And I think that's an argument that Claire Weinberg made at one point in epidemiology. And I do have some sympathy for that. I, I think that's a reasonable thing to do. I wouldn't consider it a wrong thing, certainly. But I also think that you could go further as an investigator and say, you know, I have an a priori reason to think that there is an interaction here. And I am going to assess whether there's an interaction based on substantive grounds, like what is already known in the literature is the magnitude, the difference of the magnitude of effects, is it big enough to be sort of substantively important in the context of this literature or not? Because you could easily imagine a case where you've got a massive data set and you get a relative risk of 1.35 in one strata and 1.37 in the other strata, and it's statistically significant, but no sane human being would ever actually care about that. So I, I think that there are times you could use hypothesis testing here. I think there are times that hypothesis testing could go wrong. I think there are times you could ignore hypothesis testing altogether and do the right thing. So to take that one step further, I do understand it. I think it's confusing teaching, you know, use yeah. it here, but don't use it here. And so I think the nuance there is a bit challenging, but as an aside, a different point, I guess. So what's the difference between this type of hypothesis testing using p-values and backwards and forward selections? The question I asked Matt also, because it's still, you're looking at the p-value to try to decide whether or not you should keep a variable in the model or remove it in the same way. So you're taking an action based on the, the result of this in the same way that you're using it in, in the stratification context. So I, I just, I don't get the difference. So can we back up for one second and, and talk about the one thing you were saying, Haley, about the confusion in presenting this in a classroom context of don't do hypothesis testing here, but do do it here. I mean, it's probably still totally confusing among my students when I present it this way, but the way I do it is I sort of lay out the ground rules of the hypothesis testing game. You have a decision to make, and here's the action you're going to take based on that decision. And then we talk about using it for evaluating whether you found an effect or not. And the problem with that is nothing to do with the hypothesis test. The problem is that you are playing a game that nobody ever told you you need to play. 
you did not need to play the I found something, I did not find something game. That's not helpful to science. But it is okay in the interaction setting because you do have an actual decision to make in that case. You're playing a game of do I put the interaction term in the model or do I not put the interaction term in the model? So anyway, that's the way I go about it. That's helpful, yeah. But the second thing you were asking, were you talking about selection models, like the p-value-based selection models, or were you talking about the 10% rule selection model? No, the, the p-value-based selection model. So, you know, you can, okay. you know, should you include this variable or not? Does What does the p-value tell you? Or, you know, you start with an enormous model and you let the computer do that backward selection thing and you kick variables out based on their p-value. Right. And I think there's a huge literature showing that that doesn't work very well in epidemiology. Right. And I think the reason it doesn't work well is because the p-value is just telling you about it's a, a type of measure of association between that variable and the outcome. But that's only one small piece of what we care about when we're assessing confounding. The magnitude of confounding also depends on the strength of that confounder and the exposure, as well as the prevalence of the confounder. And none of those things are captured by the p-value. So you could easily have something, a variable that has a very small p-value that is retained in the model, but is not a confounder. You could very easily have a a variable that has a p-value that is large enough to get kicked out of the model, but it is actually an important confounder. So it's just, again, like I always think of it as, as sort of a game and you're just applying the wrong rule to play this game. That's helpful. Thank you. Did I agree with Matt? Did that happen again? Like, Wait, Yes. Yes, you did. Yeah, you did there. Thank you. God. To come back to your, your presentation about the rules of the game, I, I like that way of, of approaching it. Do you think that all a lot of the messaging that we have right now and, and some of the big papers out there about getting rid of people values and hypothesis testing, you know, students come to our classes, especially PhD students, knowing that this kind of information is out there. Do you think these types of papers have done a disservice because they're just kind of painting it with too broad a brush? Or do you think they're still, you know, helpful for students to understand? I think they're still helpful, I, I guess. I mean, it would depend on the specific paper, but I think that there's a lot more abuse of hypothesis testing and p-values in the literature, especially in the medical literature, not necessarily in the epi literature specific, that if you just run herd on hypothesis testing, 97% of the time you're going to be right about criticizing it. Yep. Good good number. I'll stick with that 97%. <laughs> so wait, wait, hang on. So we're, we're like, what, like halfway through here, a little bit more than halfway through. Let's just have a check-in. I'm at number one at this point number two yeah the greatest podcast of all time and definitely higher than Kaufman well I mean you're gonna have to find it out with him on that the numbers will be what they'll be really what numbers are there download numbers for, for how, how does this thing work there are download numbers we'll give it a year and then we'll, we'll let you know who won all right what did he talk about uh you don't even remember that's how bad it was the philosophy of causal oh okay all right no we actually believe it or not we are at time we got to wrap this up no kidding yeah time flies when you're having fun rich unless you want to do a uh, joe rogan experience type four-hour podcast oh I, I could do this all day long this was this was a delight this is the best thing that's happened to me all week well we very much appreciate you doing it thanks rich uh you guys seriously this is great and matt i love hanging out with you all the time Haley, i don't know you nearly as well i've respected your work for a really long time and it was great to get this chance to sort of hang out for a longer period of time have me back i could be the first repeat guest Yes. Oh. I, I like I like your interest. Yes. Thanks for the enthusiasm. Yeah, we've not yet had somebody specifically ask to be invited back. I was going to say, this format seems like catnip for academics, right? Like It does, doesn't oh, it? Oh, you're going to ask me questions and you just want to hear me talk? Right. Like, why don't you just block off the rest of the week? <laughs> 
Okay, so while we're on this, and I and I said this on the last episode that we haven't released yet, I think, but we do this every time. We pick up a chapter and we're like, well, there's not really that much to say about this one. I'm not sure this is going to be more than yeah. like a 15 minute episode. And then two hours later, we're like, oh, we got to cut this thing down. <laughs> Well, it was, you know, I, I don't know if I'm, I'm letting on here, like letting, letting the cat out of the bag or giving the... <laughs> What's with these phrases today? <laughs> why do you have a cat in the bag? Uh, why is the cat in the bag? I'm still thinking about academic catnip. I, I'm not over that way. Yeah, academic catnip. A lot of cat metaphors here. That is weird. I don't really like cats very much. Matt does. He's a cat foster dad. Mm-hmm. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, I knew that. Yeah, I knew that. I knew that about you. Anyway, I don't remember what the hell I was going to say anymore, so never mind. Okay. Well, on that note, Rich, thank you so much for joining us. This was a delight. Thank you both. For those of you who are not members of the Society for Epidemiologic Research, I strongly recommend you consider becoming a member. Membership gets you a discounted fee for the annual meeting, which is coming up in June next year in Portland, unless it takes us until after June to release this, in which case it'll be coming up next year in Austin. But you get the idea. It also gets you access to the SER library, which gives you access to great learning material seminars and activities. You can find out more at epiresearch.org. We also want to plug our sister podcast from the American Journal of Epidemiology, Casual Inference. We are fans of that podcast, so go ahead and download that one as well. And finally, a reminder that the views expressed on this podcast are those of the hosts and guests and do not represent the views of the Society for Epidemiologic Research. We really appreciate you listening and look out for our next episode. <laughs>